Welcome to the CCF Iowa podcast. Welcome to week one of our For Everyone series, a study of the Gospel of Matthew. This week we're going to be looking at Matthew 1, uh, verses 1 through 15, uh, what's known as the genealogy. And now it's going to seem a little boring, it's going to be this weird list of names that I'm probably not going to pronounce correctly, Um, but I think the reason that Matthew starts with this genealogy, the reason that we're starting with the genealogy is because I think it kind of hides the key to what's going on in the entire gospel, to what Matthew really wants to touch upon and what he thinks is important. And so that's why we're going to focus just on that long list of names um, for this this part of our study. And, and so, but I, I want to begin, um, every time that I teach a different book of the Bible, I, I, I like to talk about some background information, the things that are going to be important in uh, when it comes to knowing, like not only about um, the text and what's in it, but but who wrote it, who it was written to, uh, those things matter because it really helps give us the proper lens to to look at the scripture, to look at the book of the Bible. And so, for the book of Matthew, um, it, it's it's written by Matthew. It's it's one of those books of the Bible where the guy who wrote it put his name on it. Um, the Gospels are all that way. Matthew is written by Matthew, Mark by Mark, Luke by Luke, John by John. Um, and so that's what we know of the Gospel writers. So Matthew is one of those guys that we know a little bit more about because he was one of the 12 uh, disciples that hung out with Jesus. He was one of those really significant guys. Uh, he was unique among the disciples in that he uh, was a tax collector. And so he kind of has this prior life, this occupation, um, before he starts following Jesus. And I'm going to talk a little bit further uh, later about what it means to be a tax collector, especially in this time, and kind of what that means. Um, But let me just start by saying, however you guys feel about the IRS now uh, is nothing compared to how uh, Jews thought about tax collectors in uh, in the first century. Um, Very, yeah. So that's uh, that's the first thing I want to say. Um, then, who's the audience to the Gospel of Matthew? Now, sometimes with certain letters, certain texts, it's, it's really easy to tell who the audience is. So, like, Paul's epistles tend to be named after the group that it was written to. So, Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth. Philippians written to the church of Philippi. So, in those cases, the, the book is named after the audience as opposed to named after the author. Sometimes, uh, in, in the very beginning of a book, it'll say, I write to you, and then I'll say, like, the name of the person or the church that they're writing to or, or a specific, like, grouping of people. We don't have that in, in Matthew. He starts off his, with his text just saying, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He jumps right into this genealogy that he wants to get to. He doesn't say, I'm writing to you, people of whatever, blah, blah, blah. So we have to extrapolate a little bit. We have to kind of take some context, take some different things. One of the nice things is there's a lot of scholarly debates about biblical things, um, most of which we don't have the time to get into or talk about. Um, I just kind of share my opinions on them and my views, and then we run with those. Um, This is one of those issues where I don't think there's much scholarly debate about it. Pretty much everybody seems to agree that Matthew's gospel is written to Jews. 
that the idea is that he's trying to share about this Jesus guy to his own people group. He wants to share to his fellow Jews the news about Jesus Christ, who this person is and what he did and all of these things. Um, so it's pretty much from... Uh, so let me say this. The thing that's significant about that then is that Matthew himself is Jewish. His audience that he's writing to is Jewish. And so one of the things that we need to take in mind when we go through this text and we read through the Gospel of Matthew is that we can't stay in our mind frame of Western thought because this wasn't written by a Westerner. It wasn't written to Westerners. Uh, it was a Jew writing to Jews. And so there's going to be a lot of Eastern perspective in this. Now, when I say Eastern perspective, uh, I'm referring to regionally kind of like the Middle, Middle East, uh, the place where there's the Semitic language groups. So that's, that's Israel and your, your Arabic-speaking countries today. Um, that's kind of what we are going to be referring to when we talk about this Eastern perspective. So we're not going all the way to Asia. We're not going that far east. Um, but we're in the, the geographic region that we refer to as the Middle East. And, and so there's some significant things about that perspective that, that I think sometimes we miss out on. I don't have a whole lot of time to, to give you illustrations or ideas about how that perspective is different. Um, but just know that there's ways that they view things differently and, and there's certain things that have more meaning than others. And so I'm going to try to touch upon that as, as I teach through uh, the book of Matthew this semester. To, to kind of share some of that, how the Eastern perspective differs from our perspective and kind of why that matters. Um, and, and so let's go ahead and just dig into this text. I'm going to read straight through the next uh, 17 verses of Matthew, which is, again, where that genealogy is found. I'm going to mispronounce lots of names because I don't speak uh, Hebrew. And um, we're just going to go from there. So this is Matthew 1. 1 through 17. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nishan, Nishan the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jokaniah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shelatiel, Shelatiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Methan, Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were fourteen generations in all from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. So the first thing I want to point out is actually verse 17, where it talks about the fourteen, fourteen, fourteen. Um, and this is 
likely significant in some way that that Matthew has intentionally grouped together uh, 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from the exile to Jesus. The thing about it is, I don't know. I've done some research on this. I can't quite figure out why he's doing this. And the thing about, again, that Eastern perspective, numbers are really important, and numbers are used to kind of... Uh, usually teach a deeper meaning. But the thing is, when a number specifically pointed out, then oftentimes that, that deeper meaning is, uh, they tend to hide things when they teach in Eastern from an Eastern perspective. They want you to find it because you learn best when you find something for yourself. And that's the idea behind teaching from an Eastern perspective. And so if Matthew's pointing it out, then kind of that's not really the thing that you're supposed to be learning. There's something else you're supposed to be learning. So I'm not really sure what he's going after with this 14 thing. Um, again, there's some significance to numbers, and numbers kind of have these metaphorical properties where they say certain things. Trust me, we'll get into that later in the text in Matthew. But right here, don't know, not sure, um, sorry, no deep insight. The thing I do want to point out from the genealogy is kind of what is weird about this genealogy. What sticks out? And maybe you were going through and, and hearing some of those names and there are some things that stuck out or some things that you went, oh, okay, that, yeah, I remember that being part of the line of Jesus or I've heard that name before. I remember that story. You know, th there's a lot of different things that may stick out for different reasons. Um, but the thing that really sticks out to me or that I want to point out it's the things that are wrong about this genealogy. Not that Matthew got any of the characters wrong, not that he, you know, skipped over certain people, although to make that 14, 14, 14 thing work, he actually skipped out on some people when you compare this genealogy uh, to that in Luke. There's some generations that are actually missing, so Matthew kind of fudged the records a little bit, which actually, again, from an Eastern perspective, totally okay because of the different point that he was trying to make. It's okay to not like literally get everything completely 100% historical accurate, uh, historically accurate if you're trying to, to say something else about it. Um, so we can excuse Matthew for skipping over some people. The thing that's weird about it is that a lot of times people will look at this genealogy and say, since Matthew was writing to Jews, the point that he wants to do, and the reason that he starts with the genealogy, is because he wants to say, this is Jesus the Messiah, look at his lineage, look at, look at the important people, look at King David being a part of it, he's, you know, he's part of the line of kings. This is our Messiah, and this is how I'm proving this is our Messiah, because look at who his ancestors were. Which is an interesting thing, except that, if you're trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, you'd emphasize all of the important people in his lineage. And instead, it seems like Matthew seems to take extra pains to emphasize the messy stories that are part of Jesus' lineage. He seems to emphasize the stuff that's icky that most people wouldn't want to talk about or would just kind of gloss over or ignore. And he specifically mentions in four different places, women. Now, this is ancient times. This is a very patriarchal culture. Um, when you write up a genealogy, nobody really cares who's, who's, who people's mothers were. They don't care about the women in the genealogy. It's all about who your father was and who his father was and who his father was. It's all about the men. And yet Matthew takes pains in four different places to point out women that are involved 
in the story. In verse 3, he says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, you may not remember the story of Judah and Tamar because it's not one that we tend to talk about in Sunday school. It's not one of the ones that we teach to little kids because it is a messy story. Let me try to give it to you really quick here. Judah has sons. Uh, He has at least three of them. And the oldest son marries this woman named Tamar. Um, He ends up dying before they have kids. It talks about how his eldest son was very wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so he dies at a young age. And Tamar is left as a widow. So the Jews have an established practice called, known as Leverite marriage. Wherein, um, if, if you have a, a husband and wife and, and the husband passes away, it's the duty of the next brother to marry that woman and to produce offspring so that you can pass along your line so that your older brother can have an heir. And so you're supposed to marry Uh, have kids with that wife and then you know your oldest son will become essentially your your older brother's kid so that you can pass along the family line and so that things can be um, kind of restored and so there's also things where uh, women aren't necessarily taken care of in the culture unless they have a husband Um, and and so there's some of that thing going on making sure that she gets taken care of so she gets married off to her next brother there's a lot of really good reasons behind it even though we look at it and say ew you have to marry your like, if your husband dies, you have to marry his brother. Like, that's really weird. Um, there's reasons for it in ancient culture, but I don't have time to go into all of those details. Essentially, this this happens with, with Judah's son's wife, Tamar. So she marries the next brother down the line. And the thing is, it, he doesn't like the fact that his kids are going to be his brother's kids through this woman instead of his own kids. And so every time... Uh, they go and they have sex. Sorry, guys. Uh, we're going to be real about what happens in life. Um, he makes sure that he doesn't impregnate her. And it talks about how he spills his seed upon the ground. A uh, very poetic way of, of saying what he, uh, the method of birth control that he's choosing. Um, and then essentially it says, and then God looked at that and knew it was wicked. And so he's killed too. Uh, so he ends up dying. And so Tamar comes to Judah and says, okay, like this is still like, this still needs to happen. I still need to be taken care of. What am I going to do? And Judah says, well, my next son's much too young to marry. And frankly, it seems like everyone who marries you just ends up getting killed. So how about we just wait for a little bit? And the thing is, this doesn't really work. Because like I said, with Tamar, in order, order for her to be provided for, in order for her to have like anything in this world, she kind of has to have a husband, especially if she's already been married. And it's really hard for women to, to get remarried because men are gross and they don't necessarily want to marry a woman that's been married before, especially when they control everything and they can have you know like any woman they want. That's not the one that they're looking for. Um, so she kind of is trying to figure out what to do. Well, in the process of all these things happening, Judah's uh, wife has passed away. And, and so he's uh, about to go on a journey, and he's heading out of town. I don't know if this is related to his wife dying or not. Um, but along the way, he decides, uh, and, and it seems like Tamar seems to know her, her father-in-law's um, perspective, exploits, whatever you want to call it. Um, she manages to dress herself up as what is known as a shrine prostitute, which is um, essentially is is a form of worship of pagan gods. They would have uh, sex in temples, and they would use shrine prostitutes to do this. And so she 
along, you know, dresses herself up to look like one of these prostitutes and waits along the side of the road because she knows that Judah is going to pass by. Judah sees her. He says, hey, let's go do this thing. Uh, it's prostitution, so it costs money. He happens to, like, not have money on him. And so he gives her his his cloak and his staff as a way to say, hey, I'm going to pay you at some point in time. Here's some stuff that's mine. Um, you hang on to these. And then, you know, like, we'll figure out this payment, whatever. I got other important stuff to do. Um, and then so what she does is she takes those things and she just gets out of town. Um so then Judah finds out, okay, I don't have this prost I can't pay this prostitute. She's got my stuff. I don't know what's going on with that, but whatever. He goes back home and then he finds out that his daughter in law is pregnant. And he's like, Excuse me? Like this is not how it's supposed to happen. You were supposed to wait for my third son to get old enough to have him, you know, like, how the heck did this happen? And she's like, Well, here's the deal. Like, yeah, I did get pregnant and the only thing I know is that the father is the one who owns these, and she produces the cloak and the staff, and Judah's like, oh, crap, that's mine. Oh, crap, that baby's mine. And then he starts to realize that, that Tamar went about, um, even though it, it was not the way it was supposed to go and not the way it was supposed to go down, she actually made sure that she was being taken care of, that justice was being done um, that, that all these things were coming about the way they're supposed to. Maybe it's not the way that we would have gone about things to make sure this happened. But she pointed out the injustice that Judah was doing to her. And she tried to make it right in the way that she could figure out. And then Judah says this really interesting thing about Tamar in this moment. And she says, wow, this woman is more righteous than I. Because she noticed the injustice that was being done. She noticed what was happening to her and she fought for justice. Huh. That's something interesting. Uh, so that's the Judah and Tamar story. Again, a messy, weird story, and one we would tend to skip if we were trying to say, hey, this Jesus is the Messiah, and he's this really important person. We might look over that story, and yet Matthew emphasizes it. Next place, we have a female mentioned, verse 5. There's two actually mentioned here. Uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab uh, maybe has been more heard about in, in some circles because she uh, herself is just straight up a prostitute. Um, she lives in the town of Jericho, and she's the one who hides the spies that come to Jericho from Israel. Um, so she's not, she's a Canaanite. She is not an Israelite. She's a foreign woman, and yet she ends up being part of this line that becomes the line of King David, the line of Jesus, this really important line of people. And it's, it's just so interesting that, that even though she was a prostitute, even though she was a Canaanite, which in some circles, especially in Judaism, the fact that she was not Jewish, um, or not an Israelite, they're not quite known as Jews yet, um, not an Israelite would be a bigger deal than the fact that she was a prostitute. We might evaluate that a little bit differently, but, you know, um, that's Rahab. But she helped the people of Israel and she got to be a part of Jesus' lineage. And then the very next line, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, Ruth we maybe know even more about because she has a whole book of the Bible that's dedicated to her. And she has a really amazing story where she has um, a mother-in-law who's left destitute by herself. And she says, even though it might be 
a death sentence for both of us. I'm going to stay by your side and I'm going to do what I can to take care of her. And then so she goes from Moab, where she's from. She's she's a Moabitess. You know, she's from Moab. She goes back to Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi, to take care of her. And then so she starts just gathering up wheat in a field because that's what the poor and destitute would do. They would just go to some field and hope that they... Um, that the people who own the field cared enough about them to leave food for them. So she gathers this up, and then she finds out that this field is owned by Boaz, who happens to be a somewhat close relative of Naomi's, um, who has this role as what's known as a kinsman redeemer, that it's actually his responsibility. He's encouraged to help out the widows, the, the women that are in distress. And so he actually ends up marrying Ruth in order to take care of her, to take care of Naomi, um, to redeem this family, to help them out. And so he also, part of this amazing line, the line of kings, the line of Jesus. And so that's, that's the third one. And speaking of kings, we get along to King David next. And it says in verse 6 that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now this woman isn't mentioned directly by name. She's just called the wife of Uriah. But right there, you should see that's kind of an issue. Because if the wife of someone else is having kids by King David then there's probably something bad that happened there. And maybe you've heard of the story of David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the name of this woman here that is Uriah's wife. Um, while her husband Uriah was off in battle, King David was hanging out in his palace, saw Bathsheba bathing, uh, ironically enough, um, and said, I need that woman. Uh, she's going to come over to my palace. And since he's the king, she's not refusing. Um... And she gets pregnant due to their night together. He tries to uh, to make it better by saying, Uriah, come home. Like, have a party and, and do all the things that you should do and, like, sleep in your own home. And Uriah says, no, I can't. Like, I'll go to the party and you can celebrate what, what we've been doing in the battlefield. But when I go home, I'm just going to sleep outside in the dirt um, because I shouldn't get to sleep with my wife while our men are fighting and toiling away. And David's like, well, darn it. Well, how about this plan? Hey, Uriah, you go back to battle. And then he tells Uriah's commanders, you're going to attack this city. Uh, and what I want you to do is when you get close to the city, like draw back all of the troops except for Uriah and just, you know, kind of let him end. So just do that thing for me. And the commanders do it because it's the king and you listen to the king. And so he essentially has Uriah assassinated uh, in a battle. Um, and so then he takes Bathsheba to be his own wife and, and, oh, look at that. My new wife is pregnant. Oh, that's amazing. Great for us. Uh, except, you know, it's found out about, and there's, uh, the prophet Nathan actually t takes David to task for what's happened and all these things. Um, it's not actually that child, the child of adultery, um, ends up passing away. Um, like in childbirth or like soon thereafter. It's, it's actually this really sad and there's some incredible psalms that are written about it and some, some mourning and, and things that David does um, that I recommend researching. We're going to do a class on the psalms, so check it out if you have the opportunity. But also, all of those things happen. Uh, their next kid that they have together is Solomon. Solomon's the next king. You've got all these line of kings. And, and so you've got these stories, these dark stories that are part of God's story and i think that's the significant part of matthew here that there's 
these dark stories, these dark tales, all these people that you wouldn't expect to show up in the lineage are there. And Matthew's not afraid to mention them because Matthew says God is for the outsider, for the person that's overlooked, that history would rather not write about or think about, that most people would, would not even think twice about. God is for these people, for the foreigner, for the widow like Ruth, uh, who herself was a foreigner, Rahab was a foreigner, um, for for someone who's who's left in um, in such a difficult position that they have no one that they can turn to like like Tamar um, for the person that's been taken advantage of like Bathsheba and is put in this humiliating situation and has all these things around um, because she had to bow down to uh, to the powers that be God is for these people. And he's not afraid to have them a part of his story of redeeming mankind, the story of Jesus, the story of the Messiah. Why does Matthew care so much about these stories, about these outsider people being brought into the kingdom, about the gospel being for everyone? Well, Matthew himself is an outsider. Like I said, he's a tax collector. And in order to become a tax collector, at least from the Jewish perspective, you had to turn your back on all on your people and you had to join the foreign oppressive government and and be willing to steal from your own people in order to have your position and to have what you needed so we don't know why matthew decided he needed to become a tax collector what happened in his life that made him turn his back on his people um but that's what happens and then in the middle of his story well he's collecting taxes jesus calls him out and says not to shame him but to says hey this story is for you. This, uh, this powerful kingdom message, this thing that I'm doing here, it's for you too. So come join me. Come follow me. Come back. You know, you've turned your back on your people, but there's still something in God's kingdom for you. And so Matthew is called out as an outsider and welcomed back in. And so much of the gospel of Matthew seems backwards because it, it looks at those that are that are out it looks at those that are uh, that are despised by the world that are that are overlooked and says no 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 you're a part of this you're in come join the family come eat with us come celebrate with us come be a part of this Jesus thing and then it also takes and and looks at those that are in all of those religious people and, and the people that 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 do know God that do know about who He is and yet um, choose to treat others in, in a way that is less and choose to be ones who are overlooking and oppressing and and not noticing the outsider and and Jesus looks at those groups those people that think they're in and says no 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 you're missing it. You're not going to end up being a part of this because you're missing it. Because this is what the kingdom really is supposed to look like. This is what it's supposed to be about. The kingdom is, is different than you think and, and you're missing it. And, and I think this is an important message and maybe the message that we most need to hear. And the reason that I wanted to be teaching on the Gospel of Matthew this year is because I don't want us to be missing out on what God is really doing. That the Gospel is for everyone. And so we're going to look at some of these stories where we see people that have been overlooked, people that the the foreigners, the the widows, the orphans, the oppressed, 
and about how Jesus is welcoming them in and saying, this gospel is for everyone. I want you to be a part of this. So I'm excited about this study uh, of Matthew and how we're going to continue to look about how this gospel, the gospel, is for everyone. Hey, thanks for spending time with us today. If you have any questions about what you heard or any interest in learning more about CCF in Iowa, then please email us at ccf.uiowa at gmail.com and we would love to get you connected.